Well, my name is Julie Garris, and I am a super senior, too. (laughs) Maybe in a slightly different way. (laughs) There are some conversations that are just difficult to have. And sometimes they're difficult because we just dread the impact our words are going to have on somebody. Like when a a doctor, can you imagine being a doctor coming in and having to tell news to a patient that is not very good? Some of you have experienced what it is like to have that dreaded conversation with some guy or gal you want to break up with. And I have already heard how some of you have handled that in such classy ways. the topic is just awkward it's embarrassing like when we parents have to have the talk with our sons or daughters I love the story of the second grader who came running in the door uh, after school to tell his mom hey mom I learned how to make babies today and she's going oh great That's just what I want to hear. Do I dare ask? She finally gets the nerve up to ask. She says, so how do you make babies? And he said, well, mom, you drop the Y and add (laughs) I-E-S. We'll wait just a minute because some of you are a little slow to catch on. (laughs) But sometimes I feel the subject is just a little too big. I have to confess I feel totally inadequate uh, to deal with the topic given me. Fear his judgment. I don't know how the chapel committee came up with the idea to use me. I think it was by, by default. I can imagine them asking Shane Wood. Shane, you want to take this topic? Well, I would, but I'm, I'm working on my fourth doctorate and my 29th book. <laughs> I don't think I better... How about Terry Bolin? No, don't ask Terry Bolin. His voice sounds like judgment. <clears throat> Chad, Chad Ragsdale, you want to take this one? No, I think I'd enjoy the subject too much. <laughs> Just kidding, Chad. <laughs> How about Agaris, the female one? Yeah, we'll have a mom talk to them about fearing his judgment. (laughs) We begin in the book of Daniel, chapters 4 and 5. And these are two incredible stories. They're drama. I mean, they still raise the hairs on the back of my neck. And I have to just be very concise and condense these in just order to save time. And so chapter 4 is this. Because Nebuchadnezzar would not acknowledge that God was the Most High, he is about to be humbled to his knees in chapter 4. In fact, he will be humbled more than that because literally he will be down on all fours before it's over with. God sends him a terrifying dream. And Daniel is called to interpret it. He says, you king are about to be judged. And you will be stripped of your leadership for a time. uh, Because you did not acknowledge that God is supreme. And you will finally be among the beasts of the field for that time. And then you will finally come to your senses. And you will be restored to your kingdom. And a year later it happens. Chapter 5 is the story of Belshazzar two two decades later. 
he's co-regent probably in that land of the Babylon or in Babylonia, Babylonia. Um, and he's having a um, feast for a thousand guests, a thousand nobles. I suspect the wine is flowing pretty freely. And so uh, in his arrogance, he asked that the vessels from this, from the temple in Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the, the uh, Jerusalem, he asked that those vessels be brought in and they actually used them to toast and give praise to their own gods. Can you imagine the offense that was to God? And so then you have the writing on the wall and it's terrifying. And Daniel's the only one who can come in and interpret that. And he says, God has numbered your days, the days of your reign, Belshazzar. And you've been weighed on the balance and you do not measure up. And this very night, your kingdom will be taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. There's a couple of things that you find just out of chapters 4 and 5. And we really need to think on these today. One is this, God judges. You know, I, we, we would much rather think more happily and tenderly of him when we think of him as he's a God of grace and a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy, God of love. But it is just as true that he is a, a God that judges. And judges judge. That is all through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. You look at the Garden of Eden, the fall of man there in the garden. And you go on to Noah and the ark. And then to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you go to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You go uh, to the times when the Israelites were so wicked. And they just kept repeating the cycle over and over again. Where God would have to judge them. You will look at David and his sin with Bathsheba. You would go through the prophets. You would hear the admonitions of Jesus and Paul that there will be judgment and God is judging. You read that in Romans 1. You, you see the judgment that fell on Ananias and Sapphira. And then you look at the ending of Revelation where John is telling us about that last judgment. It is laced through the scriptures. And number two, not just God judges, but these two guys, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, never thought they would come face to face with that judgment. Nebuchadnezzar never dreamed he would, even though he had a dream. Even though Daniel had said to him in, when he was interpreting that, and he had his own little come to Jesus moment with Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know, if you change your ways, God might change his mind. Nebuchadnezzar had even seen 25 years earlier the incident of the fiery furnace. And while I think the, the, the miracle impressed him, the truth of God did not possess him. It was just like he put that God up on the shelf with all of his other gods. You come to Belshazzar and, and Daniel tells him, you know, Belshazzar, if anybody should have seen the writing on the wall before it was literally writing on the wall... It was you. But you defied the most God, the the Lord of heaven. And it cost him his empire. It cost him his life. I don't know why it is that so many of us choose 
to live in an unreal reality, much like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, but we do. You know, it's a human trait that every one of us has this little, this little whisper coming in our ear. It's not going to happen to you. It's not going to happen to me. We do that in minor things. I'm notorious for it. I'm, I'm known around my house for ignoring the fuel gauge on my car. I don't know why, but in my mind, that the little E, it doesn't stand for empty. It stands for enough. And so I often travel on the E knowing that I've still got 30 miles left. Because it's not going to happen to me, but it has happened to me. Right out on 20th and Range Line, in the middle of the intersection, in the pouring rain, by myself, with no one to push my car out of the traffic. That was embarrassing. (laughs) I've even passed my unreal reality along to one of my daughters, who has had the humiliating experience of uh, going into the drive-thru of Sonic (laughs) and running out of gas... With a ton of cars behind her, I can only imagine what she ordered. I'd like a hamburger and fries and 32 ounces of unleaded. Please, you can hold the ice. (laughs) We live in this oblivious reality, even in life-threatening situations. We know we're in a major storm belt here in Joplin. And yet for years when the sirens sounded, what did we do? We ran out on the front porch. Where, where, where is it? Because it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my family. It's not going to land at my front door. But we knew just a few years ago that it does happen to us. The text today is a reminder that God judges. And no matter what your reality is this morning, it is going to happen. Now, because we're at this season of life and we're just days away from the presidential election, I think I probably ought to address the elephant in the room and the donkey. We can't help but ask, if God has judged nations in the past, will he judge our nation? Is there writing on the wall that we ought to pay attention to in this country? Is it possible that he could judge us? Yes. It is. So what if God does step in and judge us? What if he does decide enough is enough in this country? What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? I know one thing from what Michael DeFazio told us in the first of this series. We'll be okay. We will be okay because God is sovereign and because he has our backs. But I would be foolish to stand up here and tell you that even if he would judge, we'll always be saved from suffering. Because the rain does fall on the just and the unjust and so do the storms. So here's some things that we're going to have to, I think, know if that time would ever come. And in fact, we could begin some of this right even now. Number one, we need to repent of our own sins. 
I love the passage of Second Chronicles 7.14. It was at the dedication of the temple, Solomon. And this was God's response to Solomon. He said, there's going to be times when I will judge. That's basically what he's saying. I'll send locusts and I'll send plagues and I'll close up the heavens and there will be no rain. But he said this, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land, forgive their sins. On this side of Christ coming back, you would be hard-pressed to ever find a time when God gives judgment that it is not for redemptive purposes. So if we want to make America great again, this is the place to start. Number two, if hard times would come, I will not abandon the unrighteous. I will draw strength in the middle of that suffering from you and you will draw it from me. We will need each other more than ever. But we will not leave the unrighteous because it is in the middle of the darkness of suffering that light shines best. And three, I will trust God even if he should judge this nation. And I will join Habakkuk, who I think he said with tears in his eyes, even though the fig trees have no blossoms, And there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. People, I'm not smart enough to tell you God's judgment, to explain to you how God's judgment will work on a nation. I'm not prophetic enough to grasp how it could happen. I'm not sure even the prophets were prophetic enough to know how it was going to happen in their day. But I don't want to ever close my eyes the way Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar did to the promise that these kinds of things will happen. He does judge. What I particularly want to focus on this morning, though, is that final judgment, that final day when he will judge through his son. It is coming. I want you to look at these scriptures, Romans 2. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. Romans 14, remember we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. That one day will someday be this day. And when that day happens, God will say, time is out. We'll put our pencils down. And what we have done with Jesus now will determine our eternity then. We're not going to look at, uh, oh, we are going to look at what the judgment day holds for the believer in just a few minutes. But I think it's pretty imperative that we look at what happens to the unbeliever. And bluntly put, it is hell. Now I know we all have difficulty in our minds trying to jive and meld a loving and compassionate gracious father with an angry 
wrathful, judging God. But the scripture tells us it's a one and the same. There's people that are going to tell you, as like a Rob Bell, for example, that that just can't be. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. And so he's determined that it just isn't true. It's not real. Those kind of assumptions always happen for one reason. And I want you to hear me on this. Whenever we determine that scripture is not true in a certain area, it'll usually because we assume one thing. We'll assume, or we, we assume that we are more, we overestimate the value we place on ourselves. When we overrate our worth compared to the value of God, that's when we get into trouble. We'll say things like this, or think them at least. I'm not accountable to God. He's accountable to me. How crazy is that? He's the one that is wise and holy. He's the one who is just in all of his ways. And we, we are just his creation, created to be holy. So can you imagine how offensive his sin, our sin, our unrepentant sin, must be to this, this God who judges? Hell is real. And it will be a destination for those who have lived for themselves. For those who have ignored his pursuing of them. And it is just as scriptural as heaven. It's important to study the scriptures on this subject because there comes a certain urgency in our mission when we do. I know some of you have gone on internships and you've gone on mission trips to third world countries. And I know if you're like me, you were shocked, weren't you? by the poverty and the filth you saw in those countries. There's nobody that can tell you what it's like until you're standing there to stand beside an open sewer with the smell of waste flowing in a little stream through tropical temperatures. There's no way of knowing till you see with your own eyes the hundreds and hundreds of people living in cities made of nothing more than tin and cardboard or or when you see little four and five year old kids with distended bellies and emaciated bodies nothing can prepare you for that or when you see a little ten year old girl that's been abused and misused in ways that we don't even talk about in polite society it's then as you look at those horrific conditions that you actually begin to build a compassion in yourself and a resolve to do something about it. And without taking away from the despair and the horrendous things of that world, in those third world countries, it doesn't hold a candle to what it's going to be like in hell. When Jesus describes hell, he uses metaphors like outer darkness and fiery furnace and eternal fire and prison. And from Jeremiah, Gehenna, the valley of slaughter. 
When you read Luke 16, and it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you read those pages or the, that story, and it's it's a story of torment. It's a story where there are no there are no exit doors, there are no second chances. And perhaps the worst part of hell is that God Himself will not be there. So when we get a picture of that, as inadequate as our imaginations will be. But when we finally begin to picture that, then we become true evangelists on an urgent mission. But if we disregard those teachings, then we become very casual and indifferent. And we might as well be saying to a lost world, go to hell with you. And people, that judgment's not ours. That's God's. We don't speak much of hell anymore, which is an odd thing because Jesus talked about it all the time. Has to make us wonder if the church has become so infiltrated with political correctness of this culture that we have shoved hell right out the back door and now we're left with an incomplete gospel. I appreciate the words of Francis Chan in his book entitled Erasing Hell. He said, in my desire to distance myself from sadistic Christians who revel in the idea of wrath and punishment, I may have crossed a line. Refusing to teach a passage of scripture is just as wrong as abusing it. I really believe it's time for some of us to stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to him for being embarrassed by the ways he has chosen to reveal himself. We've heard it said, but I don't want to frighten people into the kingdom, and I agree. But how many of you are sitting there right now with a clenched gut? (laughs) Just as we're telling about the descriptions of hell, I am. It frightens me. And then I think, but wait, I know Jesus. (laughs) I know Jesus. That's what Isaac Newton was saying in his song of amazing grace. "Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. And grace my fears relieved. Our granddaughter, Campbell, is 18 months old now and she's decided that she likes stairs. She's really not big enough to be going up and down the stairs. But one day at my house, I was not watching her closely enough. And lo and behold, I catch her at the very top of the flight of stairs at our house. Now, I want you to know that when I saw her about to step off into nothingness, I did not stand at the bottom of the stairs and say, Now, Campbell, I just want you to know, Grandma loves you. And there's probably something I need to tell you. There's this little thing called gravity. No, I didn't do that with her. I ran up those stairs. I got in that little girl's face at eye level and I said, no. Because I don't like to see her cry, but people, I would much rather see her cry and fall into my arms than into or down a flight of stairs. In the same way, if people are living at the edge of hell itself, is it wrong to give a warning? Is it wrong? 
I'd much rather they fall into his arms than into the pits of hell itself. Can you imagine the city of Joplin deciding we're not going to we're not going to sound the siren anymore when a tornado's coming because it upsets people. It's frightening. In the same way, people we don't have to come we don't have to come across as legalistic, self righteous idiots who shout damnation. Just because they delight in doing it. When we speak of hell, we speak of it with tears in our eyes. And yes, we must never give up preaching grace. That's the foremost message of the gospel. We can't, we can't preach it often enough. But there is just as significant of truth that we must also preach and that there really is an eternal punishment if you do not know Jesus and that's not just me saying it that's Paul he said it too in 2 Corinthians 5 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others there's another reason to visit the less popular scripture texts And that's a lot more personal reason. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a warning. And I don't know of a crowd that this warning should be more for than people who are going into the ministry. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Who's he describing here? People that look an awful lot like you and me. People who are in worship services who raise their hands. And people who teach Sunday school lessons. And youth leaders who take kids on mission trips. Except that these people, some of these people down in the deep places of their heart where only God can see. Have developed a psoriasis, a a hardening, a callousness of the heart. And I want you to hear me on this. Are you listening? I'm not talking about people who make a stumble. I'm not talking about people who slip up. I'm not talking about people who even have a little immaturity still to deal with. I'm talking about people who have an arrogance that have decided to live outside of God's will because they don't take sin nearly as serious as God does. I'm going to be mama now. You remember last year, I know how to be mama. I love you kids. I tell you, Randy and I think we have the best job on this campus. I'm so proud of so many of you. 
But some of you are flirting with something you don't even know how destructive it is. Sin is not, you, you, you can't diminish sin. We do. Sin is not just being naughty. It's not just being silly or playing some childish pranks that hardly affect you. No, sin is toxic and it is destructive and it is addictive and it is poisonous and it destroys. And this is what makes it extra hard for us. We all live in a culture that doesn't want to deal with sin. And so the way our culture deals with it is we just slip it under the rug and pretend it does not exist. Because nobody in this world should have to feel guilt. Nobody should have to feel pain. And so we have a tendency, this culture of ours, to just, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It's all right. And I fear that the church is buying into a little bit of this. And we're mistakenly calling it grace. Sin is not okay. It is not. It will eat you alive. It is not lacking grace when we pretend that sin is is just a splice. That's, That's just wrong. So the gracious work of the Spirit is to let us feel the hurt. Let us feel the burn of sin. Let our conscience be pierced. That's a gracious work of the Spirit because when that happens, when we know we've come to the end of ourselves, that's when we fall down on our knees. And we plead with Jesus to take this sin away from us so that we can be healed and have victory. You don't get to have that if you don't get to that place of knowing how destructive sin is in your life. Don't play with God. That's what the scriptures say. The scriptures are so firm. They're they're hard. And they're convincing. (laughs) Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. I'm done with that. We're going to move on. Because there's happier things to think about. While that hell is the only thing that people who do not believe in Christ, who have ignored his pursuing, that's all they have to look forward to. We, on the other hand, when we stand before the judgment seat. (laughs) Wow. Gospels tell us it's something for us to anticipate. It's interesting that the Psalms are full of longing for God's judgment. Listen to this one, Psalm 96, 12 and 13. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest wrestle with praise before the Lord. For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. The reason they could look forward to his coming is because they had a different perspective than we do. 
C.S. Lewis tells us that those, those ancient Jews, the ones who would write those psalms, saw it themselves not in a, a criminal courtroom and they're being the person that is being prosecuted, they saw themselves in a civil courtroom where they are pleading with their case and asking God to give justice. Can you imagine being a person who is victimized, being a person who is poor, who is, that's all they've ever known, and finally coming to a place where all the wrongs are finally made right. That's the judgment seat for us people, when the wrongs are finally made right. When Jesus says to us, your sins are forgiven, at the judgment seat of Jesus... For us believers, there will be no losers. There's only winners. And yet, here's the sobering thought. Some will be winners, maybe more than others. Because listen to what 1 Corinthians 3.13 says. On the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Let me say this clearly. Hear me. We are saved by God's grace, not by works. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses. And people, dead people, cannot lift a single finger to save themselves. That is Christ's work alone. But it is true that what we say and do, our actions, our behaviors, our words, our deeds of service and works, will make a difference on Judgment Day. I don't know about the fire that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, whether it's literal or whether it's imagery. It very well may in fact be the scrutinizing gaze of Jesus because Revelation 1 tells us that his flames were like fire. But here's what I do know. (laughs) I regret already that many of my acts of service for him will burn up. Because I did them out of my own strength and not his. Because I did it out of the motivation to push myself forward for glory and not for him. When I did it out of jealousy or envy. And let me tell you people, you are going into a vocation. As high a calling as it is, it's an industry as well. And you'll get in trouble if you're only after the paycheck or only after the glory because those deeds will burn up. Tozer said, we'll hardly get our feet out of time and into eternity. Then we'll bow our heads in shame and humiliation. We'll gaze on eternity and say, look at all the riches there were in Jesus Christ. And I've come to the judgment seat almost a pauper. But we'll be saved. Perhaps it'll be tears of regret that will be the last tears that Jesus wipes from our eyes before we enter the gates of heaven.
But for those works, those things that we have done for Jesus that have stood the test of that scrutinizing gaze of his, there will be reward. Oh my goodness. My daughter Megan and her husband Ryan lived in Anthem, live in Anthem, Arizona, and I've been out there for the last week because they just had their first baby boy. It's been such fun. We have eight, eight grandchildren. This was Megan and Ryan's first baby. And I got to tell you, I'd forgotten what it's like for nine months anticipating a baby because that's all we talked about with them. When, when they found out they were expecting, Ryan rent out right off the bat and he had to get four books on parenting. Megan went and got two outfits just so she could hang them in the living room and they could just stare at them. That baby was the focus of their attention and you can see why. That baby was right out in front for months. The middle of October was circled on their calendar and... And everything they did was with that day in mind. And, and now, here's a picture of what that day brought. Little Charlie, 8 pounds, 8 ounces. Martin Luther said there are only two days on his calendar. That day and today. That day and today. My challenge for you. My encouragement for you is that you live this day with that day in mind. Live your life backwards. Every morning, wake up. And I want you to think of that day. Because that day will determine how you live this day. With the purity and the purpose that this day requires. Because let me tell you, that day is coming. And you better live in the reality of that day. Because I want you to be able to join with me, oh, I want to do this. I want to live as John did. And, and when he gave this verse, he said, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we have lived as Jesus in this world.